I want you to think, since this is all about choosing joy and making the right choices, think of the choices that you're trying to come up with an answer for right now and you really don't know how to make that choice or which choice you should make. And maybe before this evening's over, you'll have a better understanding about going about that. Now, I've prepared an original lecture just for this evening about how you can help get through some of these barriers to make better choices. I have, I have to assume most people are very bright, but they don't always make bright choices. Why? How can a person who is, has so much common sense, and this is not about advanced education, just basic common sense, how can people make just what all of us would assume would just be the wrong choice? Well, they're not making it in that moment, and that's the problem. We think the choice we're making is right now in front of us, this or this. It's not. Our choices have frequently been made long before this moment. All we're doing is reacting to the stimulus we've been given in this moment. The trouble is it's an imperfect match. Let me explain how this happens. Because for a lot of you, right off the bat, we're going we're gonna to start by showing how we make mistakes. One of the first mistakes we make, we keep making the same mistake over and over again. And we wonder, why? Why do I have to keep going on this diet? Why, when he says that he won't lie to me, do I take him back in, then he lies to me again? And I'm sure many of you have had that happen. You trust people, and they betray your trust. Or why, when you know that you should be drinking A, you drink B? And then you don't really feel good about what you've done. And then you say, I'm not going to do it again, and you do it again. You can't wait until January 1st so you can make new resolutions to break them by January 2nd. And then feel bad for a year. Some things we do make right. A lot of things we don't. It starts, and you haven't heard this before, except some of you who may have been at some of my uh, health support groups. But think about this. I, all I ask you to do is just think about it. I don't ask you to accept it. I always believe that my ideas at best should be used as a way of stimulating you to stimulate your own thought processes and then remold it, reform it in any way that it works for you. Are you familiar with homeopathy? You know what homeopathy is? Homeopathy is that if, if you had, if you came in and you had just burnt yourself on the fire and you were looking to help that burn. Now it's blistering and it's oozing and it's all red and inflamed. I would probably suggest a homeopathic remedy of poison oak or poison ivy or poison sumac. Why? Because if you're a healthy person and you touch that, that's exactly what will happen. You'll get that blistering and swelling and inflammation and oozing. So homeopathy is based upon the laws of similars. What will cause a condition in a healthy person is what you'll use to treat the symptoms in a sick person. But you're not taking in poison ivy or poison sumac. If you did, you'd blister inside, you'd die. If, if you look under a microscope at anything in homeopathy, it looks like water. If you drink it, it tastes like water. And that's why scientists in the United States and all over the world generally don't use homeopathy because they say, well, it's just water. Ah, but there's a catch. Over 120 double-blind placebo-controlled studies shows that it works more than a placebo. Now then they scratch their head and say, gee whiz, in the Lancet, the British Medical Journal, in Pediatrics, and um, the Journal of Allergy, all these major peer-reviewed journals, 
Dozens and dozens of studies, over 60 have confirmed by the strictest scientific definition that homeopathy works. It's non-toxic, it works. The confusion is they don't understand how it works. So now you got this phenomenon. Do you use something that works if you don't know how it works? Well, we didn't know how aspirin worked, but we used it. In fact, even to this day, we don't know all the mechanisms. We know it'll turn off a fever, and we know it turns off pain, but we don't know all of its biological pathways. And it's only been in the last 15 years that we've discovered these. But for over 100 years, people used the willow bark extract from which aspirin is made to help. So now we've got this. Now we've got science doesn't use something it doesn't understand. Oh, sorry, science is contradictory. It does use things it doesn't understand. Many, many, many of the things that it uses, it does not understand how it works, but it does. Then it becomes exclusionary to natural therapies it won't use. Now we get into bias. So they won't use homeopathy. Well, a reasonable person says, what does it matter if you don't know how it works? If it's non-toxic and if it helps heal, then use it. Now you come to those people like myself who are saying, well, hold on a second. If we know that there's something in there that's causing it to work and it's not molecular, meaning it's not a molecule of something, there's nothing there, it's just water, then what is it? Then what can it be if it's not a molecule? Energy. Has to be the energy that was once the molecule. Now that's kind of scary because you're thinking, you mean there's something that's there that we can't see, we can't measure, we can't feel, we can't taste. That's right. Just like radiation. Radiation in this room right now, you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't hear it. If you have a beeper, if you have a cellular phone, you're getting a microwave into your body. You can't feel it or see it, but it's there. If I turned on a radio right now with a heavy enough receiver, you could hear voices all over the world broadcasting. Well, that's what happens in every living cell of every single being and plant and mineral and animal. It is composed of molecules we can see and energy we cannot see. I work, almost all of my healing work is based upon the energy level. It is the energy that does the healing, not the molecules. Now, I didn't know that. But I knew it, but I didn't know it. I didn't know how it would work, but I knew something was going on. And that was the beginning of my understanding of the power of energy. But I've seen energy work in many ways that can help heal. But we've also seen what happens when energy is misdirected. Rage, violence. And have you ever been around negative people? You feel drained? Has that ever happened to you? Well, what are you feeling if you're drained? There's nothing that's happened. No one's come over and drained energy out of you, but you have had their energy affect you. See, what science doesn't understand, it doesn't accept. But if it were real science, it would seek to understand what it doesn't accept. And would it seek to understand why it doesn't accept it? So if something like homeopathy works, then that means you cannot have a selectively isolated rule of life. You can't say, well, homeopathy will work because there's energy there, 
that you can't see, but it was the original energy of the plant and it has the memory of the plant in it. And then say nothing else in life has that memory. You follow what I'm saying? If a plant has energy and the memory of the energy is what you're really drinking when you're drinking the homeopathy, you're taking in the memory, then you must automatically accept that virtually everything you've ever thought, ever done, smelt, tasted in your life also has that same energy. Now you think, well, that doesn't make sense. Oh, doesn't it? What happens when you're listening to the music on the radio and it was a, when you were in high school and you were out on a date and it was your girlfriend or boyfriend and, and now it's 20 years later and you hear that song, you feel those emotions. We all do. Music resonates in us. And you're going down a road and, and uh, you got the car window down and you go past a lawn that's just been cut and that fresh sweet smell of the chlorophyll and the clover comes up and and suddenly you're transported back to when you're five years old and, and pedaling down a street in your bicycle and you smell the fresh grass. And all the sensations are back. How did you recreate those sensations? You haven't even remembered those things in years. Now, if it works for the good with music, by the way, when you go see the Four Tops, I just saw the Four Tops, just saw the Temptations, and I just saw uh, 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 Little Anthony Imperials and all these acts around, and you can see the energy in the audience. When they're playing their golden oldies, everybody gets up. When they're playing new music, just as good, they just sit there. <laughs> we don't want to hear new music from people who are recalling the best of our memories. We go because we want to be taken back in time to re-experience on some level, some energy level, what it was like. Why do you think that, that the baby boomers People my age and some of your ages, from 40 to 50, why do you think we want to get back to a simpler life? Because when we were growing up, life was simple. It wasn't as complicated. I grew up before drugs. I grew up before violence. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia. Grew up on a farm, grew up in a small town where you never locked a door, ever. No one did, because no one stole anything. My dad was a police officer, and my godfather was chief of police. Then he went on to become a judge. <laughs> and my father used to hold court in our home at night. Because when it was too late and someone got arrested for something, they'd bring it over to the house. And I'd sit there on the steps. I'd sneak down the steps and watch dad. He was a, he was a very interesting man. He'd say, now, what did you go and get drunk for? Now, how's it going to look tomorrow in the paper that you got arrested? And he'd do everything he could to keep from having to arrest someone and book him. And he'd say, now, I want you to go over tomorrow, and I want you to work on such and such's garden. She's 80 years old, and you go out there, and you clean out her garden for the next two weeks every day. And we'll just this go. Now, you come back here, then I put you in jail. Now, you don't want that. I never saw him arrest anybody. <laughs> He had everybody doing community service. And it taught me compassion. Because these weren't bad people. Good people can make mistakes. And you stop the pattern of behavior. It was the energy. Caring enough to connect with what was still vital. 
And we grew up in a generation where the energy was still connected, where people still said hello when you walked down the street. People smiled. People were courteous. Remember once the car was stalling in the street? Remember like everybody on the street ran out to help that person. Here, they'd steal the car. <laughs> they'd set you on the curb. <laughs> they'd have the motor and the tires off. There are good people everywhere, including here. But there was a time when there were good people everywhere. Well, what happened? Choices. And now we want to go back and try to reclaim some of those. One and a half million New Yorkers and people living in Los Angeles and Chicago have moved in the last several years, just the last three or four years, back to the country. We want our children to have a better environment. We want to get back to where we don't have all the confusion. There's too many complications, too many responsibilities. We're going too fast with our life, and it's not making sense. The rewards of our education, the rewards of our work, the rewards of all that we've put into our life are not balancing with the joy we're supposed to be feeling. We thought if we could just do enough, we'd feel enough. Well, we've done more than enough, and we still don't feel like we're enough. So we get this empty, lonely feeling, like we've made a lot of effort with someone else's life, but not our own. Maybe we've been living someone else's life. Ah, very possible. Take it one more step, and we come to the notion that, just like with homeopathy and energy, all those good experiences and we feel it also means all the bad experiences we feel in. The trouble is when we have a bad experience, we don't always say it's bad. We call it a reaction. And we set ourselves up with the reaction of a bad memory to make the wrong choices. That's why you're not even aware sometimes the choice you're making is not based upon anything having to do with now. It has to do how you were conditioned and how you adapted to survive emotionally and spiritually, intellectually, ethically, all the different compromises you made growing up. And everybody had to make compromises. Even coming from good homes and positive uh, family, we had, to make, we had to make choices. So we made those choices. But then we didn't change those choices. Long after we should give up the allegiance to false ideals, we continue to maintain a support of them. Because we don't want to disappoint the people that in some way we feel we have to get permission from for the choices we've made and approval from. We have a choice in this moment, and if we made our choices from this moment, we'd make a right choice. But almost never do we make a choice from this moment, from the stimulation now, we make it from something behind, and it doesn't match. It's not a complete match. How many times have you wanted to be open and honest and express yourself about something and you can't. You start editing yourself because at some point in the past, maybe you were five years old or 20 years old, and you went to tell the truth, and you were, you were chastised or reprimanded, possibly even uh, scolded or demeaned because you were too honest for someone's ear to hear. And so you start realizing that every time you go to tell the truth in the future, you better be careful you better think about how much truth you want to say because if it doesn't match what someone else needs to hear, they're going to hold you responsible for being the cause of their discomfort. So now we start looking at people and saying, well, am I causing them discomfort? So now you've got to go through an editing process. 
So no one ever really knows completely what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're saying, what you're trying to share because we're editing it. And it has nothing to do with something now. Now how many people are in your mind at any given time controlling what you've thought in the past? Virtually our teachers, our parents, everybody that was a part of our formative years. They're not bad people. I'm not a person that believes in parent bashing. There's too much of that nonsense. I hear it on BAI, I heard it in a lot of books, and I don't accept it. But I do know that people do influence us. And then when we can make our own choices, we don't. And so now virtually everything we do every day is based upon preconditioned notions. So quite frankly, your thoughts are almost never your own. They're conditioned responses for survival. But we're still running around on adrenaline high, red alert, when we don't have to. We can't relax. Watch the average American go on vacation. They never relax. It's nonstop. Now, a vacation should be something where you relax. Come with me on a vacation. You've never seen a vegetable until you've seen me. <laughs> I mean, I don't do anything. I mean, I don't do anything. If I have to move more than this, it's an effort. <laughs> I find a hammock and I sleep. I'll go to the beach someplace. I don't care about snorkeling, scuba diving, high sailing, and all that other stuff. I'll watch someone else do it. Because if it's a vacation to relax, I want to. Now, if I want to go on a nature hike, that's different. If I want to go see the world, archaeological dig, whatever I want to do that has more interest or excitement, I'll do it. But we don't know how to rest. When was the last time you spent a day without telephones, beepers, television, radio, or talking? When was the last time you went in and you told your family, see this? Little sticker says, silence please. Now think about that. Because the moment someone sees you, they automatically assume that they've got to say something to you. Men in particular in our society find it very difficult to relax. And when they do, too frequently, someone in their family says, what are you doing? Why are you laying there on the couch? Look at the windows. They need, look at the car. They, go down the basement, the attic, the porch, the front yard. There's a hole there, the dog dug it. It's 38 feet deep, your dog. And you're laying there thinking, just three more minutes. Just three, please. <laughs> Put a little sign. Yes, I do that. I live alone. That's a sickness. <laughs> Just in case I see myself in the mirror and start to ask myself something. <laughs> so we've got to learn that if we're going to make right choices, we've got to understand whose choice is being made. Who's making your choices? You or everyone else who is a part of your conditioning. And then we start from ground zero. Now from ground zero, I'm going to go through some basic lessons here. Once I do this, then I'm going to go to all of you in here, and you can ask me the questions that you feel, the choices that you need help with, whether they're nutritional, whatever they are. And then I'll, I'll work on those. I hope you brought some paper. If you don't, I'll repeat these. In the back row, read this, please. <laughs> Vitamin D deficiencies. Okay, uh, let's start. One of the reasons we don't make right choices 
is because we procrastinate. But procrastination takes many forms, and we're not always aware that we're procrastinating. For example, do you procrastinate to the point where you jeopardize things essential to your well-being? How many times have you known you should stop something you're doing and you don't do it, and then you end up getting sick, or you lose something, or your blood pressure goes up, and you keep doing it? How many people do you know that they know they should stop smoking and they still smoke? Drink coffee and they still drink coffee, eat sugar. One grain of sugar can weaken a person. 100 grams, which is 100 grams is only a teaspoon, is enough to drop your antibody level for five hours by 50%. Now imagine how many teaspoons of sugar you have in a day in beverages, and then imagine what happens when you come into contact with a bacteria or a virus, and you, your body can't fight it, and you carry it around for weeks or months at low level grades of infection. In women, it can manifest as candida. In men, it frequently manifests as urinary tract infections, bladder infections, or congestion in the head, sinuses. Anytime you clear your throat after you eat something, you're allergic to it. The moment you go, <clears throat> you're allergic to it. That's a natural allergic reaction. And yet we don't pay attention to these things. Because we stop, we're on automatic selection instead of making choices. Now we procrastinate about changing. Well, I'm going to get around to stopping coffee. I'm, 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 going to, I'm definitely going to stop having milk. We don't need milk. Milk is a lysed product. It is a throw-off product of the body. It is highly antigen responsive. It creates allergic reactions. It can lead to diabetic reactions in children, and it can lead to colic and mucus in, in adults. Do you ever see people where they got a lot of mucus around the mouth? Frequently that's allergic reactions to some form of dairy. And they say, well, I don't drink milk. You eat cheese, and that's even more allergic than milk. Yeah, and you eat yogurt, and that's highly allergic. Or cream, or you might even have it in, in the form of casein. Anything that says calcium casinate is milk. I've even seen it on veggie, uh, veggie cheeses. It said veggie cheeses, 100% lactose-free. People think that's dairy-free. It is not shouldn't have any of that. But then we procrastinate. And then you think, well, I really gotta, I, I really gotta stop eating so fast. I mean, eat too fast. Any of you have been to Italy, Spain? Did you ever watch how slow they eat? I mean, if you're at a family, you're done before they finish their first bite. They actually talk during meals. We have a record sets. The arm never stops. One, two, swallow. One, two, swallow. One, two, swallow. They taste their food. We don't taste our food. We make sure we don't taste it. We put so much on everything we eat, you wouldn't know what you're eating. You could serve shoe leather. Who would know? Under the ketchup, the mustard, the sauces. Who would know? You should take one hour to eat a meal. You're, you're, and you should really only have one meal a day. I eat one meal a day, but I have juices, just like this. I put protein powder and juice 
And I might have, I generally drink six of these a day. That's a gallon and a half. Now, what's, what's the choice about this that helps? First, I drink some juices I don't like the taste of. So I decide that it's worth going through the discomfort to get the benefit. But we have been attaching our whole lives comfort to pleasure. So anything that we don't find pleasurable, we perceive as, as uncomfortable. And we won't do it. Well, what if you just drop that notion altogether? You just stop and said, it's not important I don't find pleasure in it. I find benefit to it. And it's more important to have this, this choice based upon the benefit than the feeling. A lot of people feel great eating junk, and then they feel terrible after having eaten it. I may not like the taste of everything I drink and eat, but I sure do like how I feel after I've had it. Live foods, enzyme foods, anti and natural antibiotics. Now, why is it I've never been sick? Never had a cold, the flu, stomach ache, headache? Why have I never had any illness? Why is my cholesterol 126? Why do I have triglycerides low? Why can I go out and run a marathon, an ultra marathon? I've done, I think, 50 to 80 marathons. I lost track a long time ago. Because just like a car that you keep in good shape, I never put anything in my car that doesn't allow maximal performance. I never put anything in my body, because my body's a lot more important than my car. I can always buy another car, can't buy another body. And isn't it interesting, you'll pay more attention to your car than you will your body? You'd never put a low octane if it needs a high octane, and yet you'll put garbage in your body, and that's the octane of the body. So when I have this juice, I'm putting in more enzymes in this one juice that help in repairing the body, creating natural energy systems for the mitochondria, cleansing and detoxifying from over 300 different phytochemicals, the natural chemicals in plants, and also fruits are unique because fruits, unlike vegetables, have more phytochemicals that actually repair DNA. They repair the DNA. I never used to drink this. I used to have one glass of carrot juice with some apple and maybe celery or a vegetable a day, small glass of juice. I had tons of vitamins. I was the first guy in the world to test the protocol. I created the protocol for high levels of vitamin C. I set every single day for one year, every day with 200,000 milligrams of vitamin C going intravenous in my, to see what it would do to me. And it was based upon what it did to me and checking my blood chemistry every day. I was spending almost a $1,500 a month on my lab bills to see what my blood chemistry was doing. Because I want to make sure if I was going to recommend a therapy, it had to work. And that's the therapy now that helps people overcome hepatitis. Last night at the healing center, a man who's had hepatitis B and C for nine years, gone. No hepatitis in his body. When he came, it was 900,000 titers. Constantly fatigued. Chronic fatigue syndrome. Have you ever met Lynn? Well, Lynn works now. She comes up, and she, I can't even pay her. I said, let, let me pay it. Nope. She said, you saved my life. I want to donate some time on the weekend. She comes in for a day on the weekend. When I first saw her, she was sleeping 16 hours a day. She was fatigued, uh, confused, mentally depressed. She had all kinds of viruses. I mean, every virus you can think of, and bacteria. And she was wiped out. 
She was a flight attendant for years, and that's a very dangerous job. You're exposed now. Now we know that those filters don't clean. So if you're in a foreign country and someone's got tuberculosis and they're breathing in that plane, everyone in that plane's exposed to that tubercular. Planes are very dangerous. Plus, every time you take a trip across the United States, it's like almost a full chest x-ray of radiation. She was flying all over the world on international flights. You have no idea how many flight attendants I've counseled. Dozens. And pilots. Flight attendants actually were more exposed than the pilots because the pilots would have a lot of days off. The attendants would go back and forth and back and forth. Well, I put her on, I put her on that same protocol of the high vitamin C and the ozone and, and juices. Totally well. All natural. And there's a, one of our instructors, Luann. She's a nurse practitioner, doctor of nursing, head of nursing in a major hospital with over 200 employees under for 20 years. Now she teaches with us, conservative in all their views. And then when they hear that, it sometimes gives them that feeling of being open again. And then the music over, and they close down again. You have but just a matter of seconds between the thought and the emotion that follows it. Five or ten seconds. If you continue thinking beyond that five or ten seconds, you will automatically create the emotion. And if it's a positive thought, a positive emotion, negative thought, negative emotion. If it's anxiety, you'll be anxious. Depressed, depressing. Anger. Now, I can't do anything with someone who is jealous. But I can tell them before you act on that jealousy, think about the consequences. Is this what you want to share? Because most people's jealousy is unfounded. It's perceived from that reaction. So you can change an emotion, a feeling, if you change the thought. The thought always precedes the feeling. Because once you create the feeling, you can stay in that feeling for hours. And yet every time you feel bad, you keep rethinking bad thoughts, and then more bad feelings, more bad thoughts, fear, more fear, more fear, more fear thoughts. If you just stop and say, hold on, I've, I've gone this road too many times. This doesn't feel good. I know what's going to happen if I keep thinking this way. I've got to stop my thoughts now. Bring them to a halt. I don't want to go this road anymore. I want to change my thoughts and change my feelings. That can stop people from fighting. It can stop anger. It can stop accusal. It can stop all that nonsense and give you a timeout. That's how we stop patterns of behavior. Now, when you get in the habit of doing that over and over again, stopping and saying, I'm not going to go where this thought's going to take me. It's not going to be good. I don't want the consequences of it. I don't. And you keep doing that over and over again, then what's going to happen, you're going to create a new reality in this moment. And when you redo that over and over and over a thousand times, then the next time you have a match, a stimulation, your first level of reconnecting this will be in this moment. If you do not, then it will revert back to something from the memory of the past. 
that's better than trying to erase the tapes, as they say, because you can't erase the tapes. So many psychologists over the years have tried to get you to erase the tapes. You can't. You can never erase anything that's ever been done. It's there forever. What you can do is you can stop from going back to retrieve those if you've got something more current in this moment that you're dealing with to make a better choice. Do you follow what I'm saying? You're creating a new first stage awareness before you go to your backstage awareness. Now think of how that will help you because, let's face it, in this moment you have stress. No. Are you fat in this moment? Are you reading in this moment? No. Are you making bad choices in this moment? No. Do you have pain in this moment? No. Are you processing disease in this moment? No. In this moment you have total control over your life. If you stay in the present moment and live your life in the present moment, you can only be healthy. Hence, you process wellness. If you do not stay in the moment, you automatically process disease. Because when you're not in control of processing wellness, it automatically is disease. There's no neutral in life. This whole notion of, well, I'm not really working on my health. I mean, I'm not into this health thing. Well, then you're into the disease thing because there's 64 trillion cells functioning every second of your life. They don't stop. Now, if you die right this moment, your heart's there, your eyes, your brain, your skin, your blood, what's missing? What's the only thing that's gone when you're dead? What's the only thing? Energy. energy. The very thing I've been talking about. This, the only thing that's missing is energy. When you get tired, what's missing? Energy. When you're happy and excited, energy. When you feel good about yourself, energy. When you feel that you're right about something, energy. When you feel spiritual, energy. Energy is the basis of all life. And yet science doesn't recognize it because it can't control it, it can't measure it. So it denies it, just like homeopathy. And yet we are examples of energy. The fact that I can move, that's a mechanical energy. My blood, that's an, that is an osmotic energy. Biochemical reactions, that's a chemical energy. I can keep, if I go in 100 degrees or zero at 98 degrees, that's thermal energy. Five energies create life energy. Every action creates a reaction known as energy. So I've been healing with the energy that is innate and is the life energy. We've otherwise been trying to heal the body at the physical level alone, at the intellectual level, and not connecting and resonating with anything else. We've compartmentalized healing. We've compartmentalized joy and happiness, just like the other structural components of our life all put into a compartment. And then we wonder why we're isolated and alone. There's a thread that runs through all of us. If you were to all talk for a week and never talk about what you did and just talked about your views on life, you would see how much you have in common with one another. You create a bond. It's a bond of common humanity. It would then become indifferent whether the person was Jewish, black, old, young, rich, poor, educated or not. The healing must be done on a human level. It cannot be done on an ethnic level. Look at all the good words said in the name of Catholicism. Lots of good words. Hasn't healed. In Judaism, hasn't healed. Christianity hasn't healed. Politics, it hasn't healed. And it's not because these are wrong. They've been at the right door and had the wrong key. 
because they have forgotten that beyond our religion and our politic and our education, we are still fundamentally just the same. We're human beings. All healing must be at the human level with nothing in between. Anything in between takes it to the side. So just start thinking of yourself like anyone else. Make no one better and no one worse. The other night, I stopped on the street, spoke with a couple of homeless people. One guy owned his own home until two years ago when it burned down, he didn't have insurance. Now he's living in shelters, selling these little homeless papers on the street. One guy I spoke to in Central Park worked on Wall Street, had a divorce, then lost his job, and was heavy in debt, took away his apartment, Three weeks ago, now he's sitting in the park and he says, gee, he says, I used to jog in this park every day. I used to jog past homeless people. He says, now I'm sitting here with my two suitcases and people come by and they've been seeing me and after the third or fourth day, they must be thinking that, you know, why is he sitting here? He says, I don't know where to go. I don't know how to survive. He says, I haven't asked anybody for money. I don't want to do that. He says, I go down to the places where I see other people. He says, but then I started to talk with these people and found out they're no different than me. He says, I wouldn't have given any of these people two minutes of my time before. He says, now I realize, my God, I'm one of them. Not everybody on the street is, a, is out of a mental institution, by the way. Yeah, there are some. There, there are some people out there who are emotionally imbalanced and shouldn't be out in the street. And there are a lot of people on the streets who also shouldn't be on the street. I don't believe anybody should be on the street. There's something wrong when Bill Gates has more money than the next 100 million Americans combined. Something's wrong with that. Just something not right. One man should not have more wealth than the next 100 million Americans. But that's the way it is, and it's getting more of a disparity. So we separate ourselves. We glorify those who have, and everybody else becomes invisible. You weren't invited to Lincoln bedroom, were you? I didn't think so. You weren't invited to the Council on Foreign Relations, decide how the world's gonna be run, no? No, we're just there to consume. That's all we're good for, it seems. So we have to decide, do we wanna continue the choices that have allowed us to stay in neutral and not proclaim where we wanna be with our life? Because neutral is always down. It is never neutral up. You're either using your energy to heal, which opens you up, or you're using it to disease. Your mind and your thoughts will dictate where it's gonna go. Stay in the moment, and you stay balanced. Make your decisions from the past, and you're always gonna have fear, guilt, and shame, and remorse. Project into the future from your past, and you have fear of the future. So all your decisions are made upon insecurity. If you only make just choices based upon being insecure, you're never gonna make the right choice. You're just gonna work harder and harder, never getting out of that rat race. You gotta slow down and make choices from now and put your life in perspective. Now, what a lot of people do is they wait until they see something interesting enough outside their beliefs. 
Then they go to the door and they listen. And they listen carefully. And they listen to what they're hearing and frequently what's heard is, gee, there's a better way of eating, living, thinking, exercising, relating. But do I have the confidence to try any of it? Now the problem is that we are so afraid of letting go of our current values and beliefs that we cannot incorporate any new ones in. Our life is so full of beliefs that to bring another belief in without surrendering one of our existing beliefs is not going to work. It just clutters the mind. So we stand in the door of change. We're half in and we're half out. We want the security of everything we've ever known and done, and yet we want the freedom to be healthier and happier, go on with our lives, have more meaning and purpose. But we're not, a, not willing to give 100% commitment to go forward. And we're not willing to go completely back and shut the door. We've had enough freedom and enough view that we know there's something more. Most people stay stuck at the door of change. Not in, not out. All that does is in time it creates enormous apathy. You just start to feel disgusted with yourself for your procrastination, and procrastination is one of the excuses you use not to go forward. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have enough facts. You don't have enough security. You don't have enough money in the bank. You don't have enough knowledge or friends or connections. You'll always find that you don't have enough of something to justify the changes you've got to make. Nothing's ever going to be completely right. Everything in life is a risk. If you want to grow and be healthy, you've got to take some appropriate risks. No risks, no reward. Little risk, little reward, and a major risk, a major reward. If you want to really be healthy and happy, then you've got to take a risk to be that. Because you can't honor two systems at the same time. And if we try it, we'll eat bad food and we'll take vitamins. We'll work under very negative, stressful jobs and uh, take some B-complex. It doesn't work. You've got to create something for yourself. Now, what I believe you should do is give yourself a plan and give yourself a timetable. Six months, a year, two years, however much time you think it takes is fine to prepare yourself for the changes you want to make in your life so the choices will be your own choices. Now, there's still not going to be a safety net. Now, there's the key. You really know you have courage when you're willing to make changes knowing that you have no absolute certainty that what you're about to do is going to land you on your feet. And by the way, Sometimes you'll land squarely on your rear end, and that's okay. Because think of every time a baby tried to walk, it fell. But it got up and laughed and walked again and fell again. Think how many times you did things wrong before you did them right. Right now, if you took someone who'd never eaten with a fork, ever, and you ask them to put a fork in their mouth, they're going to punch their teeth, their gums, their mouth. Think of it this way. Think of this later. Every time you put a fork in your mouth, you don't even watch it go in. You don't measure it, but you never hit your teeth, you never stab yourself. But if you thought about doing it, you would. That's the confidence of doing it till we master it. When you want, try it. Try tomorrow, and I'll bet you stab yourself. <laughs> ooh, 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 all over. And when you walk up steps, you don't raise your foot six inches and then three inches. You just walk up and down. 
Try looking at the steps and measuring your fall. But we've mastered it. We master so many things. We master so many things, but we don't master a lot of the essential things. We master a lot of the peripheral things. We spend a lot of our time around the peripheral issues of our life and we stay away from the most important issues. And that doesn't work. Go in and, go in and embrace your biggest fears. Embrace them and you'll see that the fear is mainly an illusion. That you don't have the confidence because you don't have all that you think you need to have. But if you're insecure, no matter what you're given, it'll be never enough. You can say, well, I need another question, another question, another question, another question. You can have 10 million questions answered, and if you're insecure, it'll never be the question allowing you to make the change. You've got to have the boldness of character to say, I'd rather make mistakes and learn from my mistakes by doing than not to do and always be frustrated that I could do something more. So make the change. Do we increase our avoidance of issues which increases our crisis? Do you hope something better will happen or do you go out and make it happen? Do you get anxiety over making important decisions? Do you always ask others for their approval? Would you rather help others with their projects or create projects or work on your own? You always feel that whatever you're about to do is too much. Do you exaggerate the difficulty of your dilemmas to gain sympathy from other people so that you don't have to commit yourself to change? How do you respond to things you don't want to do, positively or negatively? What happens when you feel you are going to lose something important to you? One of the reasons that we don't make many changes in our lives and we want things to be the same forever is because we don't like how it feels when we're going to lose something. I have a different view on that than most people. I'd like you just to consider this view. It's probably a radical view for many of you, but it might open you up. I grew up in a small town where you were supposed to live in the same house forever and your parents before, uh, grandparents before you. Your friends were supposed to be friends for life and whether you're a man or a woman, you were only supposed to have one job. I mean, you were considered irresponsible if you didn't like your job and wanted another job. Had one job for life. You'd work, but in your 20 years to 30 years and you retired, that was it. Now, I just went back to my reunion last Saturday two Saturdays ago, and, and sure enough, that's how many of them had lived. What if you thought about everything as just a passage? And that whatever you're doing, it's just going to be for a period of time, and then it ends. Because everything in life is a passage. Look in the mirror today and you'll see the past that's occurred physically. Look at the people in your life today versus 20 years ago and think how many passages you've gone through. And yet, 20 years ago, you wanted one passage to be for life. One person for life. One home for life. One job for life. But it doesn't work that way, does it? But what if you began to change your thoughts so that you were more realistic about what your needs are and tried to fulfill your needs in a passage 
recognizing that when those needs are met, there will be an end to all things, in which case you either renegotiate a new beginning or create an all new direction altogether. That you have the right to change courses. You have the right to go on a hundred paths if you wish. You don't have to stay on one path because how many times you've been on someone else's path thinking it was yours? You'd work very hard to master someone else's life, to honor someone else's views and beliefs, but you were so empty inside because in those quiet moments when you weren't busy, you still didn't feel the completeness you should have had for all the effort you put into a life. So I live my life through passages. If I'm working on projects, I work for six months or so on a, a book or an article or whatever. And I'll say, right now, for the next six months or a year, I'm going to do this. And this is the direction my life will take. I'm committing myself completely to this. But then this will end. And then I have the right to redirect myself. I build a beautiful place in Texas, in Gene Autry's old uh, place. I had it for 10 years, and I sold it. It was time for that passage to end. It was a valuable lesson. It was both pleasure and pain because of the difficulties, but the joys. But there was a time when it no longer met my needs. So I let it go. And I didn't think about whether I was selling it in an up market or down market or losing or making money. I thought about it being at the end of something, so I surrendered the need for it so I can make the next choice in my life. I could be on. I was on a radio show down uh, south, and I gave that show up because I no longer needed that experience. I'd done that. I had a healing center for four years. I gave up the healing center this past year, turned over Dr. Ago. Now, it's not run the same way. It's run his way. We have two different ways of doing things. But I have to respect that what he's going to do, he's got to be responsible for. But I'm ready for a different direction in my life. My, my direction now over the next, starting in December, for the next two years, all of my energy is going to be on rejuvenation, helping people rejuvenate, reverse the aging process. I've got a, something coming out on network television that you all see starting in December. I've got a major book, a thousand page book coming out on reversing the aging process. All my work, all my research, all my thoughts, all my philosophy on how we can reverse our aging is in this book. It's called Living Forever. I've got several documentaries on this coming out, and I'm now selling one, the only other place I own, in order to try to build a, uh, a beautiful Shangri-La for people who come. Probably the most beautiful spa in the world. And it'll be down in Florida. But it'll be for middle class people. So anybody can afford to be there. And it'll be where people come and learn be taught, not treated, taught how to change everything from their cells, biochemistry, and repair damage uh, to how to live a better life. And that's, that's a direction. That's a passage. And then that may end, or I may renegotiate it and take it some other direction. But by building a life based upon what I need to do to honor my own self and my views, it's a passage. Even friends are passages. And sometimes you'll see people, and they're very important in your life, and then they go in a different direction, and you say, okay, and sometimes they come back around and meet you again, and sometimes not. 
And it's not a matter of being good or bad. It's a matter of the people have choices of where they want to put their time. I don't want someone to call me once a year and say, oh, gee, you know, it's just thinking of you. You know, uh, friends are in your life. If I can't see someone and speak with them on a regular basis, then why, why are they in my life? I don't believe in this thing of having a lot of acquaintances that you bump into and they, everybody makes an excuse why you haven't, you know, spoken, you know. And, uh, friends are people you befriend. If I'm in a relationship, I'm going to spend quality time with the person in that relationship. I don't want a convenience relationship. Do you know how many times people have been in a relationship where they did not have love? So therefore, that was not an important issue, but the, the materialism or something else was, so they stayed in a relationship based upon the secondary value of what they were getting. That's, that's not for me. But for some people, it is. So you say, would you whiz? Why are you together? Well, because they're conveniences. Yeah. People can't even be honest. So what if you started to redirect your life from this moment on what's really important to you and honor the essential needs and the essential self? A lot of things would change. What is the difference in any perceived loss when you feel secure in yourself and you feel insecure in yourself? If you're not making changes because you're afraid of losing something, ask yourself, how would I feel about losing this if I were secure in myself or insecure in myself? If I'm insecure in myself, I'm going to do everything possible, procrastinate, deny, lie, uh, contort my reality in order to hold on because I'm afraid of losing something. But what if you're going to, what you're about to lose and you fear losing, is not essential to you. What if you put all that energy into staying stuck in a place in life that's not important to you to begin with? Do you understand what I mean? People are afraid to lose a job that's a toxic job. Because it pays the bills, then find another way of paying the bills that honor you. Because you're afraid to go to bed alone at night, well, if I'm secure myself, and if the person I'm going to bed with at night is not a happy person, a warm and loving person, then I'd rather go to bed alone. But if I'm insecure, I'll be one of those guys that go to bed you know, with the same person who I don't like, but it's better than going to bed alone. That says more about me than does the person I'd be with. I'm saying that most of the things we fear losing, we shouldn't have to begin with. What you feel you cannot live without, you shouldn't be living with. Because it is not nurturing you, it has imprisoned you. And when you become imprisoned in your decisions by your fears of not making choices that are in your own best interest, then how are you going to choose joy? How are you going to choose a new career? How are you going to choose anything that's happy for you? How are you going to change your diet? Because you're afraid to lose the respect of people around you? There's a firefighter that comes into Whole Foods. Ball-headed guy, nice guy. He has the whole fire truck pull up there and goes and gets stuff. But when he first started taking in this thing, they all did ridicule him, you know, and what's that, you know, pond scum. But when they got all sick, he never got sick. And they go out to a fire, he never coughed up black. So now, after five years, they're paying attention to him. Now they're actually starting to enjoy it. He didn't fear losing the respect of his colleagues by the changes he was making. Because of that, he made his choices from confidence. And now other people are motivated because of that. 
So look at the examples of what you fear losing and ask yourself, are you procrastinating and not making changes because of your insecure self or a secure self? What is the root of envy and jealousy? Is it real or perceived? I, I respect other people for the joys and happinesses and everything else they have in their life. I don't envy it. If I envied something, I would be insecure in myself. I don't look at someone and say, gee, you're with a more beautiful woman than I am. That shows disrespect to the woman I'm with. I can appreciate the beauty of other people, but it does not lessen the beauty of the person that I, I would enjoy. I can look at someone and say, God, you're really strong but it doesn't make me feel about bad about my own strength. I don't envy it. I respect it. Because I figure if you're strong, just like in a sport, when a guy I took a, a silver against the Russian national champion in a championship race three weeks ago, I went over and I shook his hand. I said, you ran a great race. He says, he says, I trained eight hours a day. I said, well, I can't train eight hours a day. And I know how hard it, you had to do to do this race to win. And so instead of envying him or being jealous of his victory, I respected it because I knew what he had to do. We have to get out of envy and jealousy and get into our own self to see how we build ourselves. In the moment, you can do that. And lastly, in what ways are your relationships of value to you? At least sit down and make a list of all your relationships, your job relationship, your family relationship, your friends, all the relationships you have in your life, and ask yourself, what's the value in this relationship? And add up all the values and see how they are of value to you. And sometimes you'll see that some of the relationships you have in life really don't have the value they should. And therefore, you can start the process of disengaging or strengthening or seeking another way. We have too many things in our lives that are superficial and not enough essential. And that ends this particular part of our discussion.